Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that we can abide in your tent and we can dwell on your holy hill because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our high priest and has secured for us entry into the presence of a holy God. It is him we extol and glorify and seek to worship with all our heart and soul and mind and strength this day. As we turn to your scriptures now, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the nourishing bread of life therein contained. I pray that those who feel famished, who feel run down, who feel discouraged, wherever this message finds us, perhaps lost in transgressions and sins for the unbeliever within the hearing of your voice, I pray that the word of God would come forth like rivers of living water, like bread unto eternal life, and that we would find in it, Lord, the satisfaction of our soul's cry for nourishment. I pray, Lord, as you go forth in a mighty way to accomplish your will and purposes in our day, that you would do so using us, Lord Jesus, as you equip and perfect and sanctify your church to boldly proclaim the knowledge of Christ our Lord, died and rose again, ascended, ruling and reigning with kingdom advancing and enemies being subjected under your footstool all the while. I thank you, Lord, for your scriptures, which provide for us an anchor for our souls and Jesus Christ, our sure foundation. I pray that you would reinforce us as we now turn to your word, that you might be glorified and your kingdom may move forward against the gates of hell, which will not prevail against it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, we turn to the scriptures in the providence of God for, I feel, a very timely passage and message. That is my prayer, anyway, from Psalm 109. So turn there with me, if you would. Psalm 109 will be our text today. We have 31 verses to cover. I'll do my best. There is a chance we might pick up on this uh, next week if we don't get to all the content this morning. The aim of this morning's message is to understand and apply an appeal to heaven considering the God of our praise. Verse 1, be not silent, O God of my praise. Right there, the first phrase, the first sentence of Psalm 109 is an appeal to heaven and an appeal to the inhabitant of heaven, if you will, the Lord of heaven, the God of the psalmist David's praise. The title I had two chosen for this message will go with appeal to heaven. You could also say, perhaps, that this psalm is summarized by this theme, the accuser's reward. An appeal to heaven or the accuser's reward could both describe the major and overarching theme here. David, as the agent of the Lord, as the magistrate musician, makes his appeal to heaven. Yet in his appeal, he asks for the accusers to get their reward. Who is the accuser and what is the reward of the accuser? That is the sum and substance of the imprecatory nature of Psalm 109. What does imprecatory mean? It means to call a curse, pronounce a curse, to invoke punishment. Psalm 109 is one of the more intense, if you will, imprecatory or curse-invoking psalms in the scriptures. And so we will enter its text here in a moment. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence this morning. So as you're able, could you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Psalm 109, verse 1, under the title, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 16, For he did not remember to show kindness, 
but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as with his cloak. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, verse 26. O Lord, my God, save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. Verse 30, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 109 is certainly not light reading, is it? Psalm 109, incidentally, is the second of a set of three Davidic or psalms written by David. In this portion of the Psalter, 108, 109, and 110, each of the psalms proclaims victory over the enemies of the Messiah and his people. Each of them do. Last week we covered Psalm 108, and they declare this victory in different ways. Perhaps Psalm 108 is summarized by this theme, victory in war. Psalm 109, I submit this morning, proclaims victory in court. Psalm 103, I'm sorry, 110, uh, next time we're in the Psalter, victory in ascension. Victory in war, victory in court context, and victory in ascension. The Messiah declares comprehensive victory, illustrated in these different ways in these Psalms of David. What is, let me give you a question here to ponder. What is the punishment deserving of treason against the Messiah. Treason is a capital offense in historically in many cases. And if treason, that is to betray one's own people, one's neighbors, and one's country, is such a vile offense, let me ask you this. What is the punishment for cosmic treason? What is the punishment for treason against the Lord of glory? What is the punishment for treason against the kingdom of heaven? against the Lord and his Messiah and his rule and his reign. And furthermore, this question could attach. How would a prosecuting attorney seeking justice on behalf of his client, forgive this analogy, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, how would a prosecuting attorney seeking justice on his behalf make his case? Well, the answer to that question is the theme of Psalm 109. Psalm 109 answers this question by bringing us into the courtroom where a just God will rule against those who prove his most malicious enemies. Psalm 109 brings us into the courtroom where a prosecuting attorney, if you will, the word of God through his servant David, makes the case against his most malicious enemies. A citation of this psalm, here's proof of this, a citation of this psalm resurfaces in Acts 120. Perhaps if we have time later, we'll go there. With reference to who? None other than Judas Iscariot. And who was Judas? And why was he famous? Kids, who was Judas? What was the bad thing that he did? Anyone remember? Kids, Judas. What was the bad thing that Judas did? Kids, do you recall? Who did he betray? Does anyone know? Judas betrayed Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. The authors of Scripture recognized the validity and application of the imprecatory psalms, psalms pronouncing a curse on God's enemies in the context of God's justice and covenants. Peter recognizes this psalm applies in the case of Judas and invokes the kind of judgment language of Psalm 109 in the case of the betrayer, in the case of the one who has declared his treason against the Lord of glory, particularly in that instance, Judas himself. Now, 
in light of this bigger picture, in light of the fulfillment of this prophetic anticipation in Psalm 109, we understand this point. David is not just singing as an individual. And often David will assume what I call in some cases, or what I've uh, read in the past as the messianic first person. What does this mean? Well, he adopts the voice of the Messiah, if you will. Perhaps even a little more precisely, David is singing as the lineage of Jesus Christ. He's expressing the position, the cry, the heart cry of the lineage of Jesus Christ in Psalm 109. This is not a petty, vindictive overreaction against a particular injustice. This isn't David overreacting against some, an incident where he r rather should just love his enemies or turn the other cheek. No, that would be to misunderstand the context of Psalm 109. David is speaking for the lineage of the Messiah, invoking the justice and judgments of God to stamp out any declaration of war against God's purposes to save his people in history. This is serious. He is singing as the lineage of the Messiah, if you will. As such, he is expressing a cry for the preservation of mankind via the redemptive purposes of God, and he cries that they would be protected at all costs. Since God has ordained to reveal himself and his Messiah in history through the seed of the woman all the way back to Genesis 3.15, since this is the way that redemption will be accomplished and God will reveal himself, therefore the war, the seed of the serpent in conflict with the seed of the woman, if you will, this war with the serpent or waged by the serpent is fought on the stage of human history and David recognizes as such and he deploys in this courtroom analogy sufficient judgments against the enemies of the future Messiah to stamp him out and to thwart his attempts to overrule God's plan for the salvation of his people and the glorification of himself all the while. The wicked on trial in this indictment, listen, they have leveraged their office to maximize power for evil purposes. This is an additional principle illustrated in Psalm 109. The wicked on trial in Psalm 109 have leveraged their office to maximize power for evil purposes. This is an immediate application of Psalm 109 as well. Fear the Lord if you are to take the office of magistrate. Fear the Lord if you have any position of influence whatsoever. Fear the Lord if you have any privileged position of power over others. Why? Because if you use it to maximize evil against the purposes of God and His Messiah, then you are guilty of twice the hell, if it, if it could be said. Future salvation for humanity hinges upon justice served in preservation of David's house. And therefore, Psalm 109 declares war through this indictment, this covenant lawsuit against those who would seek to stamp out the purposes of the Messiah in history. Through the ages, there has manifested a particular evil wherein agents of satanic allegiance have waged war against the purposes of God and salvation, employing strategies ranging from despising God's anointed, belittling, blaspheming, marginalizing, minimizing Jesus Christ and the revelation of Him throughout history, and his word. So the satanic allegiance has waged war on the purposes of God and salvation by despising God's anointed all the way up to infanticide policies, killing the little ones, waging war on the image of God and the means of the incarnation whereby the righteous are, or wherein the righteous are most vulnerable. These are principles that we see when the wicked one the serpent is seeking to stamp out the purposes of God that he knows will come through the seed of the woman, it makes sense that he would wage war against the vulnerable. It makes sense that he would wage war against the image of God and the very vehicle of the incarnation, even the womb itself, even the little ones. And this has taken the shape in history by the animosity and the enemies of God's people waging war against David, the uh, animosity and of Pharaoh, this king who used his power in an ungodly way, waging war against the future Messiah who was preserved in a little ark that his mother made, namely Moses. Meanwhile, all the babies born around him, the males, Pharaoh sought to throw them into the Nile. This was a case in Herod's day when those who were strategically placed or those who retained some sort of power and influence abused the same and leveraged their office to maximize power against the Lord and His purposes, killing all the little ones in Bethlehem. Jesus escaped 
when his parents ran away to Egypt and so forth. These are the kinds of wars through history that deserve the kind of indictment against those who align themselves with these satanic forces that Psalm 109 speaks to. If they do not repent, they will be taken to court on Judgment Day. It's a lesson of Psalm 109. If anyone who declares their allegiance complicitly or openly with the forces that rally themselves against the Messiah, if they do not repent, they will be taken to court on Judgment Day. And Psalm 109 anticipates these proceedings. Heading for you, David models ultimate redress. What does redress mean? It means to take your complaint to someone who has the power to do something about it. Has anyone felt that you don't have a place to go to take your complaint to someone who has the power to do something about it and the righteousness to do the right thing? Perhaps in the wake of this recent election, many of you are feeling that way. I guarantee about half at least of the nation feels that way. Where do we go for a redress of grievances? When the Supreme Court fails us, when the electoral system fails us, when we feel like the political uh, leaders fail us, when all of these aspects of our life today, all these claims to authority fail us. Well, David models an ultimate redress. There is a higher court, a higher power, a higher authority still. Number one, he brings his redress to the Supreme Court. Number two, he brings his, or number two, he models ultimate redress via sentencing, the judgment that God's enemies deserve. Number three, he models redress via an appeal, verse 21 through 29. And finally, he models redress by a plaintiff's doxology. Let me give you a quote from John Locke, one of the influential framers or least intellectual minds behind the formation of our own nation. I can't commend all of Locke's philosophy, but I feel I can commend this quote, especially in light of Psalm 109. Locke says, And where the body of the people or any single man is deprived of the right or is under the exercise of a power without right and have no appeal on earth, then they have a liberty to appeal to heaven. Whenever they judge the cause of sufficient moment, and therefore, though the people cannot be judged, so as to have, by the constitution of that society, any superior power to determine and give effective sentence in the case, yet they have, by a law antecedent, that means coming before, and paramount, that means over and above, all positive laws of man reserve that ultimate determination to themselves, which belongs to all mankind, where there lies no appeal on earth, viz. to judge whether they have cause to make their appeal to heaven. What is Locke saying? When there is no practical redress of grievance, where there is no one with the power and the righteousness to intercede on your behalf, you are not out of appeals. There yet remains an appeal to heaven. How do we know that Locke is on to something? I submit by Psalm 109. David goes before the highest court, the Supreme Court, makes his appeal. In the case of God's purposes and glory, his plan for the salvation of man, and the redress of the grievances that pertain to this issue. Verses 1 through 8, note verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. He is begging for God to issue a decree, a statement of authority, a proclamation of justice, and he knows that this is the highest source of authority of all. Who is this God? This is the God of his praise. Who's the God of your praise? Who is the God that receives the praise of the people of this nation? Two ways you can judge people's praise. That which they're deathly afraid of and that which they invest their hope in. That is who you praise. That which you're deathly afraid of, that which you invest your hope in. God is the only one who holds the keys of life and death, ultimately speaking. He is the one you should truly fear. Be afraid if Psalm 109 judges you as his enemy. And secondly, God is the only one you should ultimately invest your hope in because he is the Supreme Court. How many of us have lamented in this nation, where can we go if the Supreme Court is unjust? And how many of us have supported and great as far as it goes, hopefully righteous, godly justices who will inhabit that Supreme Court? I'm here to tell you, I hate the name. I hate the term, the Supreme Court, because it's a lie. The court, the highest court in our land is not the Supreme Court. Now, I know what it means, relatively speaking. However, 
I am, I think, in the souls and the consciousness and the confession and the fears and the hopes of too many in this nation, perhaps millions in this nation, they hold the Supreme Court to be the highest practical arbiter of authority, the final rule on things. And this is what John Locke calls the positive rule of man. In other words, it's a legal theory that says whatever the highest rule or the most power in that society says practically establishes the ethics, right and wrong, for that generation, for that people, not so. There yet remains an appeal to heaven. There is a supreme court over the supreme court. And the scriptures say, be not silent, O God. David also says, I give myself to prayer. Here's something to pray for. Pray that the Lord would not be silent. Now, if I just left it there, it might sound almost blasphemy. Has God spoken? He absolutely has. But think of this. What is God's means of proclamation of His rightly divided word of truth and the knowledge and the authoritative assertions of His right, right and wrong and the true foundation of any just and righteous society? It is the word of God. Pray that there would not be a silence in this land because pulpits fail to rightly divide and proclaim with authority the word of God. This is a way that we can fight right now. We can pray that the word of God is boldly proclaimed without uh, marginalizing its most important truths, without shrinking from the battle where culture puts the most pressure on, without twisting the scriptures to fit our new improved progressive so-called ideas. No, pray that God would not be silent inasmuch as those who are called to proclaim his word will not adulterate his message. Otherwise, we will all be swept up in the judgment of Psalm 109-like retribution. But if there yet remains those who proclaim, like the prophets are called to do, principally speaking, the word of God without equivocation, there remains, even in our day, an appeal, a real one. Do not be silent, O God of my praise. Why? Here's the threat. Wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Wicked, deceitful mouths, lying tongues. How many of us have lamented the corruption of media and the aggregates, you know, the internet and major networks and so forth. I heard one podcast this week and they said, you know, it's down to which lie do you prefer? That's all the hope they have because in the information that they're getting, if they try to seek for truth in the morass and confusion of the wickedness of their culture, they have no hope that they're getting it. There is a place to turn for truth, but you won't find it in the major tech company conglomerate controlled information dispersion, but there is a powerful and unquenchable voice of God's sovereign truth that will never be silenced and will never return void, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God sticks out like a healed thumb. It's kind of a dumb analogy. The Word of God sticks out and shines all the more brightly in a sea of absolute self-contradictory confusion that has become our major news sources and information streams and so forth. Be not silent. The word of God shine by contrast in an era among a people who have been complete, almost completely corrupted by wickedness, deceit, and lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. Now David <clears throat> appeals to the Supreme Court, the higher authority, and he lays out his case as a covenantal betrayal. The justice of God is never capricious and never arbitrary. David showed great restraint when in the case of Saul. Remember, he had opportunity to kill the man, but he did not. He showed great restraint, took a piece of his robe instead, and refused to take God's anointed. Furthermore, David accepted rebuke and repented in the case of Nabal, even from Abigail herself, and did not invoke out of turn justice. By these standards, we can trust and we can see that the imprecatory, the calling down of a cursed nature of this song is not an expression of fleeting, vengeful passion. This is a lesson for us. If David had killed Nabal because he was so angry, that would have been, initially, that would have been an expression of fleeting, vengeful passion. But if David, what did David do though? He heard the word of the Lord even through Nabal's godly wife, Abigail. And the word of the Lord rang loudly in his ears. He repented and let the Lord do his work. But he knew that Nabal was guilty of despising God's anointed. And what did God do? The God who owns the rights to vengeance, he killed him. He killed him. Was that a just act? Absolutely it was. Suffice it to say that Psalm 109 contextually tells us that God will enact his justice in due time perfectly 
And we can trust that he will do so, even if it seems like we have to wait a long time, surrounded by lying tongues, deceitful mouths, and the wicked, who encircle us with words of hate without just cause. David makes his case with a covenantal appeal. He says he gives himself to prayer, and this, of course, manifests his trust in God to defend him. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer, and so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. David's case, actually every case in which justice is determined to come by way of horrific punishment, is according to an objective standard in God's rule. It is according to covenant. We even have a covenant in this nation that is a document whereby we have submitted ourselves to be judged. It's called a constitution. And that idea, that notion, that principle is a biblical one. The idea that a constitution judges objectively right or wrong where a nation stands so long as it's in conformity with God's word goes back to the idea of covenant in scripture. David is describing terms where he has been betrayed by those closest to him. That is those who are in covenant relationship with him. Those who are closest to you, you have the ability to betray you more than anyone else. This was the case in Judas, the fulfillment of this passage here. In other words, Judas was intimately related to Jesus Christ. He was a trusted confidant, if you will. He was in the inner circle, and therefore he had the ability to betray his master more than others did. And so who is guilty of a greater crime? Judas, the one who sold him to the forces that sought to destroy his life or the forces themselves. Well, in a sense, Judas, the son of perdition, is guilty of a greater crime. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. We see the voice of the Messiah coming through. In other words, the most wicked offense, the most vile sin of all is to set yourself in rebellion to God's purposes to redeem mankind. And you better be thankful for Psalm 109. Because if the Lord was not vigilant to protect his purposes and the saving of his people by destroying his enemies, you and I would have never received the gospel. Jesus Christ would have never been born. He would have been slaughtered by Herod. Moses would have never led the people out of Egypt. He would have been thrown and drowned into the Nile. But God does not suffer his enemies to thwart his plan. And their attempts will return void. Meanwhile, his word will accomplish that which he intends. And there comes a day where everyone must stand before his court. And the only ones who will be justified are those who have washed robes. We see those who have dirty robes in this passage. But those who have washed robes are the ones who can endure the day of the Lord's coming. But all others better fear, better repent. The tables turn, verses 6 through 8. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. You see, there's language here indicating official capacity in court. And this language of standing at his right hand, that's court language. That's positional language that indicates the court proceedings. David is modeling an ultimate redress in terms of court. He is making his appeal to the Supreme Court. And he uh, pleads his case as follows. What is the penalty for false accusations in the law of God to be punished or to be levied as punishment? Or what is the penalty for false accusations in the law of God? Well, that those false accusations, the punishment that they would receive, is actually the punishment that is due those who make false accusations. This is according to the book of Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21. And it's an example of the symmetrical and perfect and ordered law of God that would restore justice to a land if we would but heed its standards. And so David, knowing this, invokes Deuteronomy 19, 16 and 21 and declares in this indictment, speaking right as the attorney on behalf of the messianic lineage, that the very things the false accuser says that we did, that he would be punished by the punishment those things deserved. Now this speaks to the abuse of power. The accuser, who is he? He is the one who multiplies his malicious evil by leveraging the force of government or position when the office holder or well-positioned individual flexes his power against the innocent or godly. And in that case, there is extra hell to pay. So Psalm 109 will preach to whoever is going to take the office of president, whoever will be the new um, you know, leader of the Department of Justice, whoever will be the Attorney General of the United States. If anyone, magistrate, then or now, occupies that office and he uses, 
his situation to multiply malicious evil, leveraging his force of power or government against the Lord, against his word, against the godly, and against the innocent, there is twice the hell to pay. This is the message that people assuming positions of influence in our nation need to hear. What, and here's another thing to pray for. Pray that the so-called, I pray that they would be legitimate, spiritual influences speaking into the halls of civil power in our nation would bring this message of fear and trembling to those who are about to step into office. The Bible says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, the government is a legitimate institution with the power to kill. But what happens when an agent of government uses that power to kill against the innocent or against the godly? He is guilty of institutional systemic murder. He is guilty of taking the lives in a way that a mere serial killer probably could never do. In other words, you pass a law that says that abortion on demand is legal and you've just paved a way for millions to be slaughtered. Witness our nation in the last 40 plus years. Let's say you're a serial killer, a wicked, horrific, whatever, you know, the kind that we spit at their name when we hear them virtually speaking in the sordid history of our past. Well, how many murders did they get away with? 30, 40, 70? Infinitesimal number. So you see, in the law of God and in the way that he has arranged things, one better step into the office of civil power with a whole lot of fear. This is why Jethro tells Moses, look for those who will not take a bribe, who fear the Lord and are trustworthy. And for their sake, tell them that they better own those qualities. Because if they step into a position of power, if they take up the sword and they don't fear that authority in their hand, they can be guilty of twice the hell. Because they have multiplied the murder against the innocent, multiplied the war against the ungodly as a useful tool for Satan himself. David, number two, he models ultimate redress via the Supreme Court, that is the law of God and the court of the Lord. Secondly, he models redress of grievance by sentencing. So what is the judgment that those who are guilty of what I just described deserve? Well, it's extensive. Verses 9 through 20 speak to this. We'll go through this portion more quickly. This is the fearful language of absolute ruin. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins. Verse 11, may the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Does that sound harsh? Notice verse 16. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. This is not overreaction. This is not passionate, passionate individual vengeance run amok. This is proportional justice. Psalm 109 realizes the true gravity and the true atrocity of abusing one's position and declaring war against the godly and the innocent by maximizing their power. And this is, what, and this is the judgment that that kind of infraction deserves, that they would be left in want and calamity and ruin and rejection and abandonment, no heirs, no posterity, no influence, unforgiven and forgotten. Unforgiven and forgotten. This is the imprecatory scope. In other words, this is the judgment that sin deserves. Those who declare allegiance to Satan and his purposes, this is the kind of judgment that sin of that nature deserves. Posterity, lineage, calamity, financial ruin, abandonment, legacy erased, unforgiven, unforgotten. Does that sound harsh? There's a principle yet remaining in legitimate Western justice called lex talionis. Lex talionis, something along those lines in Latin, means proportional justice. It is recognized as a biblical principle that the nature of the crime determines the nature of the punishment. So is this disproportionate language that we have just read? 
And verses 9 through 15, no. And verse 16 proves it. So why is this hypothetical enemy of the Lord, his anointed and the seed of the Messiah, worthy of this kind of devastating judgment? It's because of this. He did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. The punishment fits the crime. God measures justice by those who are most vulnerable, least able to protest, the voices that are the most feeble, the voices inside the womb, for instance, you can't hear at all without an ultrasound. These are those who are easiest to take advantage of in a nation. These are the impressionable girls. There have been <clears throat> a whole um, book, I can't remember the title or the author off the top, recently written by an unbeliever that tells the devastating effects of the transgender movement on particularly young girls in our culture. What has happened is the, fragil the psychological fragility of a little girl has been co-opted by a movement that wants to erase the terms of God's created order. Male and he female, he created them and open up the doors of sexual lawlessness to identify as anything that you prefer. And then we advocate oftentimes in these policies and so forth that gender altering permanent, permanently, permanently maiming drugs be given, be prescribed to eight-year-olds. And what are we doing? We are co-opting. We are exploiting. We are traumatizing. We are abusing the psychologically vulnerable to accomplish the erasure, and it will not prove obviously successful, of the image of God in the heart, in the experience, and even in the nature of mankind himself. And this is what Psalm 109 is getting to. Now, this should bring us to fear. Fear who we vote for. Because if we vote for those that would endorse this kind of campaign, they're exploiting the psychologically vulnerable to accomplish an absolutely devastating end, and they want to teach it, many of them do, in every single public education indoctrination center in this land. No. Psalm 109 says that if you invoke such a psychological, torturous campaign such as this, it's the kind of child abuse that when leveraged by law, renders you worthy of these kind of judgments. Need I say more? Need I cite abortion? The voices that cannot be heard are the most vulnerable among us. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a veil of deception across this land that is as thick sometimes as night in the fog itself. And there are many people who voted for those who endorse the very things that I'm saying because they think they do the most to support the needy and so on and so forth. No. What they do is they, uh, through, un again, breaking the law of God, confiscatory taxes, that which God does not allow, they seek to redistribute the wealth, taking advantage of their power to steal in the name of compassion. And then smuggled under this false compassion is all these other insidious, horrific violations of God's holy law that will be the absolute destruction and undoing of this culture if we don't get serious, call them out, and declare the punishment that is deserving of these types of things. This is my discernment of what's going on right now in our land. Our land is ripe for an indictment straight from Psalm 109. And the scriptures take us to court. And the scriptures take our ideas, our policies, and our values, our virtues, and our worldview to court. And they say, here's the law of God. Do you measure up or do you fall short? And we see by these measures we fall so far short. It's devastating. And the indictment, the punishments of God that are worthy of this kind of infraction ought to horrify us. And this is why, saints, let us pray that the word of God goes forth. Let us give ourselves to prayer. In light of this indictment, does it not make us want to pray more that God's word would rescue the lost so that they might repent before the only thing they have left to face is this kind of judgment? Does this not motivate us to praise the Lord even in the midst of the throng because we know that he is the true Supreme Court justice? He is the true head of the highest court in all the land, it should. Now, verses 17 through 20 tell us that those who remain in this kind of corruption, they live, abide in unwashed robes. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. You notice the proportion here? He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. This is lex talionis. This is proportional justice. Verse 18, he clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil against my life. 
Now, if you want a hopeful and redemptive contrast, I encourage you on your own time, turn to Revelation 7.14. Revelation 22.14. Let me introduce this uh, gospel application. Now, these filthy, stained, corrosive, toxic robes radiating with all of the fallout of our sinful nature corrupt us. And this is the picture. And these robes, these cursed garments, these, uh, you know, wrappings of death. In other words, you know, perhaps an analogy would be one of the worst judgments against someone or one of the worst punishments against someone for murder in the ancient world, I've heard is to tie the dead body of the victim to that individual. And what happens is they carry this body around and eventually the corruption, the degradation, the decay and the maggots eat from the dead body into the body of the murderer and then they die. This is the picture. Those who love to curse, let curses come upon him. Those who do not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with the cursing as his cloak, coat. May it soak into his body. May it corrupt him. May it be like oil in his bones. May the death and decay of his victims seep into his very nature, into his very existence, until he himself becomes like those that he condemned unjustly to death. Is there an escape from this? When you hear this, does it not make you treasure the white robes of Jesus Christ's own righteousness all the more. Brothers and sisters, the revelation speaks of the robes that we wear being washed. When you hear this, doesn't it make you cry out for the washing of the water of the word? It ought to. And as you realize that the power of Jesus' blood that was shed on that cruel cross of Calvary has the power to wash your sins away and to drape your form, your resurrected new body, your regenerate new man, your born-again existence with those white robes of righteousness, does it not make us thank the Lord all the more for taking our corruption and giving us His righteousness? This is the message that our culture, our world, our day and age needs but it won't ring true unless and until we're serious about the corruption that infects us. And this comes through in the sentencing in Psalm 109. Major point number three. David models ultimate redress via the, the Supreme Court sentencing and thirdly appeal, 21 through 29. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. In this, passion, or in this passage, he goes on to say, Help me, O Lord, verse 26, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and they are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. This is that clothing language again. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. This appeal section, verses 21 through 29, give us the ground, they give us the means, and they give us the necessity of this appeal to heaven, if you will. Number one, the ground. What is the basis upon which this case is adjudicated? It's based on the glory, the name of the Lord. But you, O Lord, my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. I pray, this is another prayer for us. Pray that the Lord would deal on our behalf as the godly and as much as you have been redeemed and called forth to champion his word and your life, lifestyle, decisions, and proclamation. Pray that the Lord would intervene on your behalf, not for your sake, not for the preservation of tomorrow, most principally, not to preserve your civil liberties, most principally, not to preserve even your religious liberties, most principally, but instead, most principally, that he would deal with you, intervene on your behalf for his glory. When Moses intervened, he taught us how to do this in uh, Exodus 32. You can read that on your own time, verses 10 through 14. He begs the Lord to spare his people. Why? Well, they haven't been that bad. How, how far do you think Moses' appeal would have gotten if he went before the Lord and said, yes, they're worshiping a golden calf, but look at the Philistines. They have like a hundred gods. Look at the Molech worshipers. They uh, you know, burn children alive on their altar. Look at the uh, people over here, the Baal worshipers. They have high places all over the place. This is just one instance how successful do you think his appeal would be? That is no ground for appeal. There is no comparing oneself among oneself that would give you the assurance of holiness and the assurance of salvation. No. The appeal is to the word 
It is to the glory. It is to the name of God. And so Moses prayed this way. Do not let the enemies crush your people because then they will say that the Lord has not done justly. He has not fulfilled his covenant or there are forces greater than him out there. Moses knew how to pray. He prayed for the deliverance of God's people, not primarily for their sake, but for the sake of the name of the one who had covenanted to them in his steadfast love. If there's any ground for assurance, any ground for our appeal, it's on the basis of this. Now, what is the means whereby we can plead that God would save us and that appeal would be heard? Well, he does it on the ground of his name, but by the means of this, his steadfast love. His covenant bond between him and his people. Because, of your, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. Verse 26, help me, O Lord my God, save me according to your steadfast love. God has purposed in his covenants and his promises, as we've read and studied, Abraham, Moses, through Jesus, even to us, if you're in him today, to preserve us. That the death of his son would satisfy the punishment, the wrath, the judgment that our sin deserved as a propitiatory sacrifice, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And by this covenant of steadfast love, remember we talk about this often, this is the gospel in the Psalms, the covenant of steadfast love is a place of reconciliation of God with man when a sufficient sacrifice is present, thus we have, thus allowing us entry into his holy presence. This is a picture of the temple fulfilled in Christ. And this is the means of our appeal. If there's any hope for America, if there's any long-standing hope for salvation, it's not in the bailing wire of the best possible, you know, manipulation of the circumstances right now. But as we said before, earlier in this year, it's through sackcloth. It's through repentance. Those are our options. As we learned from Nehemiah, it's sackcloth or slavery. Sackcloth is the humility and the repentance pictured in what you wear. You know, trade the clothing of your corrupted godlessness, America, that we see here. The toxic, inflamed, maggot-infested, corrupt robes and replace them with the robes of sackcloth and repent, repent and turn from your wickedness and turn to the Lord. And then the rivers of his uh, redemption will flow, washing you clean, giving you Christ's white robes of righteousness and incorporating you by covenant into the promise of his steadfast love, which comes only through Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate hope of salvation for an individual, for a people. As we see on this appeal, there is such a necessity to it. And David understood his weakness. Was he, you know, what did we learn from the last passage? Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. And then we ask this question, what were the primary weapons used at Jericho to bring those walls down? And I submitted worship and obedience. Were they battering rams? Were they chariots and horses? Were they complicated, you know, strategies? All these things might have their purpose somewhere. But ultimately speaking, the strongest weapons in the arsenal, these are the ones not according to the flesh, yet mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Even as Danny was praying over me this morning, preparation of this message according to 2 Corinthians 10, these are the mighty weapons, worship and obedience. This is how we defeat our enemies. We obey the Lord, we proclaim his word, we worship him. We recognize those who make their appeal to heaven that we are absolutely desperate. We cannot save ourselves and the short-term fixes and the bailing wire solutions will ultimately prove ineffective. Why? Because verse 24 describes us this way. Our knees are weak, America, through fasting. Our body has become gaunt you wicked culture, by no fat on your bones. You're on your last legs. You're an object of scorn of your accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord. Save me according to your steadfast love. He's describing a man who is days, perhaps hours from death, starving. Do you remember in Psalm, a few Psalms back, we had those four pictures of distress? Those who are in dire need of salvation are like those who are crying out for a drink to stay alive for another five minutes in the desert. They're like those who are careening underneath the water with just moments before their brain stops functioning because they can't breathe oxygen. Those who are in need of salvation are described in these ways. Deliver us, they cried to the Lord, and he delivered them. However, what is the nature of that deliverance? It is his covenanted, or his, his covenant fulfilled in his steadfast love guaranteed in Jesus Christ. And without him, we are desperate. 
That's one application of these words. Of course, another application, as we've said before, David is speaking in the Messianic first person. He's describing the brokenness of the Messiah in similar language to Psalm 22 on the cross, may I suggest. And so the assurance of our salvation could be answered by this question. Will God preserve his purposes even through the suffering of his son? Will God prove triumphant and victorious in spite of the calling through suffering unto glory? Absolutely yes and amen. Psalm 109, 8 guarantees that this will happen through warfare analogy. Psalm 109 guarantees this will happen through courtroom analogy. Psalm 110 guarantees this will happen by the ascension to the right hand of the Ancient of Days by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, born of a woman to satisfy God's purposes in redemption and to earn for himself the inheritance of all the kingdoms of the earth, defeat all his enemies and put them in subjection to Jesus Christ. Then comes the final day, the day of judgment, and that's what we're reading about. And if you don't stand with him, if you don't ascend with him, if you will, by the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit in regenerating your soul, causing you to be converted to Jesus Christ, to be born again, pictured in baptism at this, right up on this stage in the recent weeks. If you're not there, then you will stand under this indictment and you will hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. Go there with the rest of the goats and be thrown into a lake of everlasting fire. God forbid, but there is only one way of escape, it's through Jesus Christ. Now, in light of all this, how ought David close his psalm? He closes his psalm with a plaintiff's doxology, if you will. That is the worship of the one who's been offended in bringing his case, right? Verse 30 and 31. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. David is worshiping as protest. You know, our street, what do we do? Everybody in this exercise, with this outrage culture. What is the means whereby where voice can be heard? Well, all sorts of methods are being sanctioned right now and being followed, are they not? Burning down buildings, throwing Molotov cocktails, you know, asking for revolution, overthrowing the system, starting all over, getting it entirely. And all of these things are vain attempts to rescue our plight, rescue us from our plight. But David knows that the best protest that he can offer is to praise, to glorify the Lord, to champion his cause and to point to the Messiah and to make his appeal to heaven in the midst of the throng a Molotov cocktail throwing uh, unbelievers. With my mouth I will make great, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Who is the throng? There are those who rewarded him evil for good and hatred for his love. They're the ones who are in allegiance with the satanic call to declare war on the image of God and the godly through their policies, through their programs, through their values, through their sin, through their wickedness. Who, are, who is the throng? The throng is the accusers. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, those who speak evil against my life. And again, who is David speaking on behalf of the lineage of the Messiah? There were those who would falsely accuse Jesus Christ, those who would betray him, Judas and the religious leaders. And who did Jesus reserve the harshest words for? And who received the strongest indictment and judgment, the time of the Gospels, if not those two parties? Why? Because they were the accusers of the Lord of glory. Now, if you stand with Jesus Christ, his enemies are your enemies, and they will receive just recompense. So stand with him. Praise him in the midst of the throng. And demonstrate in your attitude of confident praise that the Lord will take care of business when it is his time. If not now, on Judgment Day. This is our appeal. But we should not be silent. We should proclaim as much. And this is what it means to praise him in the midst of the throng. Or worship him as our protest. One final reference. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. As you're turning there, Psalm 109.31 says, For he, of course speaking of Christ in fulfillment language, he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. What does it mean to stand at the right hand of the plaintiff or the one accused? And what does it look like when Jesus Christ himself stands at your right hand to plead your case, to prosecute the case against you? What does that look like? We have a window into this courtroom right here in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. 
Now, when they had heard these things, of course, these are the stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in their hearts and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, religious leaders of the day when Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to the crowd, calling them to the attention to the Messiah revealed through history and calling them to repent of their sins. When they, the enemies of the Messiah, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. These are Stephen's. These are Jesus Christ's accusers. Verse 55. But he, Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And what did he see? And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen speaking, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Was this a welcome proclamation to the rebels? No. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where's his appeal going? His appeal is going to the courtroom of heaven where Jesus Christ is seen by the eyes of this deacon. He sees him standing, representing him before the Father and knows with confidence that he is going to be received into the arms of his advocate, of the one who defends him from the court of heaven. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. But Stephen died, you might ask. But he was killed by those stones. But he was destroyed by that violent passion of an angry mob who hated him and hated the Messiah he represented. So where is the justice? It would but be less than one generation when God would rain justice upon the city that killed the Messiah and his apostles and prophets with the kind of devastating judgment that Josephus and others record as singular in all of history. Jerusalem and all of its political, religious, cultural order would be destroyed by the hand of God. Now Stephen pleads on their behalf that if there are any who would repent and turn in between when he sees the Lord standing to judge him, and the moment when that court day summons comes, right? Even in our system we recognize someone's out on bail, but there's a court date to come. For, for a period of time, some decades uh, the people who slaughtered Stephen were out on bail, but there was a court date to come. There was opportunity to repent. Did any of them repent? Well, note, there was one, Saul, who would become Paul, who repented. Jesus Christ said, how dare you kick against the goes? And what did Paul do? He repented of his lawless, murderous rampage against the Lord of glory and his anointed. He became the most powerful and influential, a possible, arguably, in all of the early church. But for those who did not repent, the day of God's judgment came and the blood of righteous Stephen was avenged and Jerusalem was destroyed. Revelation speaks of a repository of justice waiting yet to happen. And it is symbolized most principally by the martyr's blood. And that is to say, brothers and sisters, even if we have to die in this new age we're entering into, God knows what it will be as a martyr proclaiming the authority and power and the and the uh, and hope found in Jesus Christ alone, even if we have to die as a martyr, let us do so proclaiming that there yet remains a judge who stands at our right hand and will secure us entry into the courts of glory and pronounce this over us, not guilty because the blood of Jesus was shed for your sin. Meanwhile, for those who kill you, for those who oppose you, for those who pass laws that seek to uh, declare war on Christianity, for them, there remains a day of judgment. The Lord knows when it is. Call them to repentance, even as Stephen did in the last breath. Another way to fight, given the circumstances we find ourselves in. We have learned from Psalm 109, the accuser's reward. We have seen its application in Stephen's own experience. Saint, believer in this room, can you trust that Jesus is at your right hand defending you right now? Can you trust the uncertainty of the world that we embrace now, regardless of what the results of this election hold? You can and you must. And listen, as you do so, your voice and the clarity of your testimony will be such that it will be turned into a weapon, a two-edged sword of the just declaration of God's holy word that might provide for the lost an opportunity of repentance. And if not, it will give them fair warning of the day in court to come. Will you join me in this endeavor? Will you join me? Let us pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you for your holy word that provides perspective for us in days like ours, in days like Stephen's, in days like David's, and at any point in history where the forces of the evil one declare war on the godly. I pray, Lord, that we would learn the lessons of Psalm 109 and would be greatly strengthened and emboldened to stand upon them for the sake of our souls, but more so for the glory of the Almighty God, you and your purposes in history. Lord, I pray for the equipping of your church. We close this message praying for our country. Lord, we have gone through a tumultuous election season. Many people have uncertainty. There's much tension in our land. There's all kinds of unrest. There's all kinds of idolatry. But we know where we stand. We know where we have assurance. We know where our rock and foundation is. We have heard of him proclaimed in his word even this day, Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would raise up a standard against the wickedness of our culture by your convicted and unwavering church. And that as you do so, you would shine brighter, all the brighter in this dark day by the message of salvation in Christ alone broadcast in this hour. Lord, I pray that you would equip us through the proclamation of your word, that you would convict us of sins that easily beset, and that you would draw the lost into salvation by the proclamation of the same. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.